0: Like the liberator and southern worker before it, SNYC's short-lived monthly Cavalcade, the March of Southern Negro Youth, became a forum for creative expression. Founded early in 1941 under the editorship of Augusta Jackson, Cavalcade offered local and national news, political commentary, cultural criticism, and poetry. Because Cavalcade published a wide range of authors, from accomplished poets to young activists who dabbled in verse, much of the work is uneven in quality. Nonetheless, these poems provide a small window into the complex consciousness of SNYC members, reflecting not only the writer's thoughts on democracy and racism, but the editor's choice of political messages. The central theme of all political verse in Cavalcade was America's inability to live up to its democratic creed. A poem titled God Bless the Negro Race by Esther May Howard and James Bolden, two working-class youth living in the small mining town of Belle Ellen, Alabama, could not have been more explicit in its claim that democracy was a God-given right. Composed of simple, somewhat clichéd phrases Howard and Bolden's poem could have been used as SNYC's credo. God bless the Negro race with all the honor due. Give us a just opportunity to share in this democratic liberty. God bless the Negro race with the right to vote. All men are created equal. All men have a load to tote. God bless the Negro race, like other races we know. We are tired of being barred from freedom. Help us fight our foe. Waring CUNY was perhaps SNYC's most prolific and popular literary figure, though hardly the neophyte one might associate with a youth-oriented movement. An established poet and musician, a graduate of Lincoln University, and an original caravan puppeteer, CUNY was entering his 40s when Cavalcade was launched. Like his friend and fellow Lincoln man Langston Hughes, CUNY displayed a deep affection for the blues. His organized blues spoke directly to the life and toils of Birmingham's industrial labor force. Tell you one thing will make you mad when the company store says your credit's bad. Go into the meeting, hear what I say. Poor folks got to organize the blues away many of CUNY's cavalcade pieces carried a strong anti-war message. Uncle Sam Says, another Hughes-style blues, suggests the futility of fighting a war for democracy when the U.S. had yet to live up to its ideals, a common theme in black anti-war resistance since the American Revolution. Nonetheless, the nationalist implications of this poem are balanced by an allusion to interracial unity and class struggle. Aeroplanes fly across land and sea. Everybody flies them but a black man like me. Uncle Sam says your place is on the ground. When I fly my aeroplanes, don't want no Negroes around. Uncle Sam says two camps for black and white. But when trouble starts, we'll all be in the same big fight. Likewise, The work of New Orleans poet and SNYC activist Eugene B. Williams embodied both blues form and anti-war content. In Drafted Blues, Williams speaks through the voice of a black woman who has lost her fiancé to military conscription. While the poem's central figure got to be a soldier fight for democracy, the irony is that he could not make a decent enough living in his own democratic country to marry the woman he left behind. Like CUNY, Eugene Williams appears to have taken his inspiration from Langston Hughes. His New Songs from Dixie, published in 1941, is reminiscent of Hughes's A New Song, published nearly a decade earlier. Deep in the heart of Dixie, new songs are in the air, not songs of supplication, not songs of dark despair, but songs of we want justice for white and black alike with melodies unending until that note we strike. Certainly Hughes's early focus on class struggle and social revolution is absent from new songs from Dixie, but the single theme that runs through both Williams's and CUNY's work is the unfulfilled promise of democracy. Moreover, Lines such as For White and Black Alike stand in sharp contrast to the various stanzas that articulate growing racial militancy among black youth during the war. The subtext of Williams's racial politics is much clearer in his moving poem titled The Christening, in which he implies that racism constitutes the ultimate contradiction in American democracy. The words are those of a black minister who— while christening a black boy named John Charles Tenth Man Thomas, reveals to the child the harsh realities of life in the U.S. When you are old enough to walk and talk, be sure you stay in your own backyard, for your nut-brown skin and kinky hair are poison in the sights of nine-tenth men. And when you've grown old enough to go to school, to learn to read and write and understand the doctrines of democracy, let not your desires for the select fruits of the tree of liberty lead you into places where those fruits are divided among the nine-tenths people of this glorious land. Amen. In order to change the world, SNYC activists maintained, The struggle must be interracial in composition and militant in character. A striking dictum for a black organization in the late 1930s and early 1940s, Cavalcade editor Augusta Jackson made this point crystal clear in a long poem entitled The People to Lincoln, Douglas. Up from the people, poor white and black, slave alike, horny-handed from the frontier and farm. Fred Douglas in Maryland, you endured the cut of the slaver's lash till blood flowed, but Abe, you felt it too, up there in Illinois. Ironically, Jackson's allusions to the similarities between poor whites and blacks, as well as to the forms of oppression unique to the black experience, harken back to the CP in the early 1930s, The entire poem subtly suggests a future interracial working-class movement that would incorporate some form of black self-determination. In other words, Jackson reiterates an old political vision, which in both cases ignores women, without using the party's characteristic convoluted language. We are free now, all the people of America, black and white, and Indians, Free from slavery, yes. Free from land, too. And bread and power to rule ourselves. Free from happiness and leisure. Abe Lincoln, clench your fists once more. Straighten your back. And take the hand of Fred Douglas, the ex-slave. And turn to the people. We are ready again, Abe Lincoln. We, the people, will drive out the slave master. The literary expressions of SNYC activists and supporters, therefore, advocated a politics of inclusion and self-determination, a vision of interracial democracy combined with black militancy, economic fairness without explicit references to socialism, and an uncompromising anti-segregationist discourse inextricably linked to a celebration of the African American heritage. Yet these cultural forms and the unique social life that developed within SNYC and the LYS did not develop in a vacuum. On the contrary, the evolution of a youth-based radical movement culture was shaped by their political experiences in the magic city. The period between 1940 and 1941 might even be seen as a preface to the explosive civil rights battles that erupted in the streets of Birmingham 22 years later. Youth Congress officers had barely settled into their new headquarters at the Negro Masonic Temple when, in April 1940, they had to rush off to New Orleans for the fourth All-Southern Negro Youth Conference. The New Orleans meeting fell short of capturing the feeling of unity and non-sectarianism characteristic of earlier gatherings, mainly because the issue of communist participation became a central subject of debate for the first time in SNYC's history. As with the SCHW and other contemporary liberal movements, the Dyes Committee and the Nazi-Soviet Pact began to take their toll on the Youth Congress's internal political life. SNYC's adult advisors, in particular, tried to pass resolutions restricting communist participation, and some even called for the expulsion of suspected party members. Although most rank-and-file delegates defended the right of all youth, regardless of their political affiliations, to join SNYC, the ensuing debate and rising anti-communist sentiment did lead to a small exodus of members and advisors. More significantly, the New Orleans Conference adopted a regional strategy for mass voter registration and anti-poll tax drive. Although the right to vote had been one of its slogans since 1937, SNYC's program of action outlined that spring set members in motion, especially in Birmingham, where the new political landscape was ideal for such a campaign. The LYS had just arrived and was anxious to begin its own anti-poll tax work. The Alabama CIO had stepped up voter registration activities. And the CP's long-standing foe, the NAACP, had launched a community-based suffrage campaign in Birmingham earlier that year. The NAACP's support for an anti-lynching bill, decent housing, integration in the armed forces, and higher wages for black workers— as well as the right to vote, made its program uncomfortably similar to SNYC's and the Communist Party's. Indeed, the Birmingham NAACP had developed such a radical reputation that it began to lose some of its black middle-class membership. Early in 1940, National NAACP Representative Frederick Morrow reported that the Birmingham branch had disintegrated pretty badly to the point where it had to rebuild again, cold from scratch. It does take courage, Morrow explained to Walter White, even here in Birmingham, and a great deal more in the little towns in the country. With the anti-lynching bill hot at the moment, a man who parades around town with a button on his lapel has got guts. Following the decisions of the New Orleans meeting, SNYC set out that summer to build a mass suffrage campaign essentially taking up where the now-defunct Right to Vote Club had left off. In June 1940, SNYC launched its campaign with a mass Right to Vote rally at Birmingham's 6th Avenue Baptist Church. The audience of several hundred, most of whom were black, listened to speeches by local NAACP leaders, CIO organizers, educators, and SNYC activists suggesting ways to proceed. The Congress's basic demands included the elimination of the poll tax, of white primaries, and of various literacy requirements, and complete protection from physical violence and other forms of intimidation blacks had to endure at polling booths. Over the next few weeks, a series of smaller community meetings were held in Bessemer, Inslee, and Pratt City, to mobilize support for SNYC and publicize the Geyer Anti-Poll Tax Bill. Ed Strong and James Jackson resumed the Right to Vote Club's educational function by instituting workshops designed to prepare black residents for the vagaries of registration. Workshop participants learned precisely what their rights were with respect to the poll tax, property qualifications, and voter registration for veterans. Congress organizers also tried to reach workers in the TCI owned mines, but company police posed a formidable barrier. At the Hamilton Slope Mine, for example, police arrested James Jackson and Esther Cooper for distributing anti poll tax literature to miners. To highlight the summer campaign, the SNYC Right to Vote Committee held an Election Day demonstration on November 5th. In pouring rain, Dozens of black youth and a handful of white LYS members marched through downtown Birmingham with placards that read, Vote the American Way. Vote to Unchain the Ballot. Let Us Vote. We Are Americans Too. And Poll Tax Denies Democracy. Hundreds of Abolish the Poll Tax buttons were distributed and SNYC literature littered the area. The determined marchers, a large number of whom were female, reminded a few onlookers of that fateful day in 1926 when Indiana Little led nearly 1,000 black women to the Jefferson County Courthouse steps to demand the right to vote. One passerby, an elderly woman, took special pride in the march, though she did not participate. We won't win the right to vote by sitting behind closed doors talking about it, she remarked. These young people will bring a new day. In March 1941, in an effort to recreate what a new day might look like, SNYC and the LYS organized the first Alabama Youth Legislature. About 150 delegates assembled in Inslee's CIO Hall to draft and adopt mock bills that would answer the needs of Alabama's Negro citizens Her poverty stricken youth in the cities and on the farm, her jobless school graduates, her voteless hundreds of thousands. The Alabama Youth Legislature hoped to set an example for the official state legislature by passing an array of labor, anti war, civil liberties, and voting rights bills, and by reallocating imaginary defense funds to benefit the poor. Two months later, SNYC the SCHW, and the LYS declared May 11th through 17th abolish the poll tax week and planned nearly a full month of demonstrations, forums, and related programs to mobilize support for the Geyer anti-poll tax bill. To coincide with the week's activities, the Communist Party held a conference in Birmingham on youth work in the South, attracting CP organizers from across the region the events culminated in a joint anti-poll tax and right-to-vote conference sponsored by several organizations, including SNYC, the LYS, the SCHW, the Birmingham CIO Industrial Council, the AFU, the Birmingham World, and the Black Elks and Masons. Assembling in Birmingham's First Congregational Church, the conferees listened to Joe Gelders, at Strong, Esther Cooper, William Mitch, the Reverend Fred Maxey, Laurent France, and mine mill organizer Reed Robinson discuss, among other things, the role poll taxes play in disfranchising poor white and black voters in the South. Like the communist-led Right to Vote Club, SNYC's anti-poll tax drive drew opposition from a variety of black organizations, including the Birmingham Negro Teachers Association and the Alabama State Teachers Association. But the campaign won far more friends than enemies, achieving a level of popular support from Birmingham's black community that had been beyond the reach of the Right to Vote Club. Along with the LYS, the SCHW, and several Birmingham communists, SNYC helped create the Jefferson County Committee Against the Poll Tax, which waged a protracted local campaign during World War II. Indeed, until its demise in 1949, the Youth Congress directed most of its resources to winning the ballot for black people in the South. The LYS and SNYC continued the civil liberties work started by the SCPR, which had ceased to exist after Joe Gelder's assumed leadership of SCHW's Civil Rights Committee young Birmingham radicals really had no choice. As the Dyes Committee hearings and anti-Soviet sentiment fanned the flames of America's Little Red Scare, the LYS and the CP in particular became prime targets of a renewed anti-radical crusade. Throughout the spring and summer of 1940, the Birmingham Police Department's newly appointed Chief of Un-American Detail, Ollie F. Osborne, Liberally invoked Section 4902 of the Criminal Code to arrest suspected radicals. The ordinance authorized police to arrest without warrant any person found under suspicious circumstances who fails to give a satisfactory account of himself and to detain suspects for up to 72 hours without charge, thus allowing ample time to interrogate or intimidate radicals without having to file formal charges. In April 1940, Laurent France was arrested and held incommunicado for 48 hours under Section 4902. That France was served a summons to testify before the Dies Committee in Washington, D.C. during his two-day detention was no coincidence. A few weeks later, police raided the communist-run Modern Bookshop and arrested Mary Southard, now the proprietor after Jane Speed wed communist Cesar Andreu Iglesias, and moved to Puerto Rico, and two customers who had been perusing the shelves. The customers were eventually released, but Southard was detained for several hours under Section 4902 without being charged. By midsummer, Osborne's unit had stepped up its activities considerably. Several suspected communists were caught in the Un-American Details dragnet, including AFU Vice President Gerald Harris, Sr., who was arrested and detained for nine hours without charge. It was 1934 all over again. The LYS and Joe Gelders, then Secretary of the Civil Rights Committee of the SCHW, campaigned for the repeal of Section 4902 and distributed mimeographed handbills denouncing the recent arrests. Over the backdrop of an artist's rendering of Eugene Bull Connor holding a long red whip in his right hand, The handbill described the repressive atmosphere and vowed to challenge the ordinance's constitutionality in court. Law enforcement officials' liberal use of Section 4902 was likened to fascism. This is the kind of power that Hitler's secret police has in Germany. For distributing this inflammatory leaflet, Birmingham police arrested Malcolm Dobbs and Joe and Marge Gelders. Upon their release, Dobbs and Joe Gelders appeared before a regular meeting of the Birmingham City Commission and continued to compare the Birmingham Ordinance with current practices in Nazi Germany. The repeal of Section 4902, they argued, was mandatory for the preservation of democracy. In an impassioned address, the Reverend Dobbs announced it was, "'Time for us to devote a real part of our attention,' to rooting out the enemies of democracy in our midst, to root them out and to remove the unconstitutional and undemocratic laws which permit them to jail people as Hitler jails the defenders of democracy in Nazi Germany. Their pleas before the city commission fell upon deaf ears, however. As Joe Gelders put it, the atmosphere of the meeting could hardly be exaggerated. There was a genuine lynch spirit. Gelders and the LYS then tried to fight the ordinance in court. But in every case, police released the suspect before habeas corpus proceedings could be filed. And since the detainees could not be prosecuted on the basis of Section 4902 alone, it was impossible to test the ordinance in a court of law. But more importantly, the Communists and the LYS fought alone. Birmingham liberals were either silent or completely in agreement with the use of police power to arrest and detain radicals. Indeed, while Birmingham radicals fought in vain to repeal Section 4902, an Alabama statute was adopted that same year that outlawed any flag, insignia, emblem, or device of any organization or nation antagonistic to the Constitution and laws of the United States or to those of the state of Alabama. SNYC also found itself in the thick of civil liberties issues. It was looked upon by ordinary blacks as an alternative NAACP, a legal defense organization in the same tradition as the old ILD. Complaints of police brutality, illegal arrests, and assorted episodes of courtroom injustice were frequently brought to SNYC's Birmingham office were passed on to local organizers in the vicinity. Although SNYC lacked the financial resources needed to take legal recourse, in most instances it attempted to bring local and national attention to these cases through petitions, demonstrations, and publicity campaigns, much like the ILD several years earlier. Their first major Alabama case involved Nora Wilson, a teenage black domestic worker from Elmore County who was serving time in Watamka Women's Prison for using abusive language to a white woman. The conflict began when the white woman, a Mrs. Woodburn, accused her employee, Adrian Wilson, Nora's 11-year-old sister, of stealing six ears of corn. In defense of her sister, Nora engaged Woodburn in a heated argument and later that day was arrested. Without benefit of counsel, Wilson was indicted by a grand jury on August 23, 1940, for assault with intent to murder. A few days before the grand jury hearing, Nora's mother described the incident to the Caravan Puppeteers following a performance in Elmore County. They in turn contacted SNYC's Birmingham office. Following an investigation by Field Representative Arthur Price Jr., SNYC launched a mass campaign to free Nora Wilson that fall and with some assistance from the LYS, secured an attorney to work for her defense. The governor's office and the offices of several Elmore County public officials received telegrams and petitions from across the country demanding Wilson's release. The campaign even prompted blacks in her hometown to form the Millbrook, Alabama Youth Council, which devoted most of its time and resources to her case. Consequently, Wilson was released less than a year later. All charges against her dismissed. The precedent set by the Scottsboro case played no small part in the youth Congress's victory, for as one Batomca prison supervisor admitted, this is a nigger case and we don't like publicity on these things. He was sure to ask if SNYC had any connection with the Scottsboro case. This case gave us a lot of bad publicity. Closer to home, many black Birmingham residents asked SNYC to investigate police brutality cases in the greater Birmingham area, an age-old issue in the black community that had been revived by the murder of black Fairfield resident O.D. Henderson early in 1940. Arrested merely for arguing with a white man, Henderson was found handcuffed in a Fairfield jail cell the next morning, his lifeless body beaten and riddled with bullets. The SNYC office issued a statement demanding a full investigation and the immediate prosecution of the officers involved. Within weeks of Henderson's murder, a young black metal worker named John Jackson died at the hands of Fairfield Police. It all began one May evening when officers Hubert Alexander and Ed Taylor responded to a local grocer's complaint that a line of black moviegoers waiting to enter a neighborhood theater blocked his store's entrance. In the line was John Jackson, who, after exchanging harsh words with the two officers, was arrested, handcuffed, and forced into the back seat of their patrol car. By the time Alexander and Taylor had completed the four-block journey to the Fairfield police station, Jackson was dead. Outraged by these two incidents, SNYC and the LYS demanded a full and impartial investigation of the Fairfield Police Department and the NAACP, largely through the efforts of Attorney Arthur Shores, unsuccessfully tried to file charges against Jackson's arresting officers. The District Attorney, the City Commission, and practically the entire Birmingham Police Force not only sided with the two officers, but explained the rising tide of police shootings and beatings as acts of self-defense. Less than two weeks after Jackson's death, yet another episode of police brutality was brought to light. The case of 23-year-old Foster Powers attracted considerable attention because it occurred during Abolish the Poll Tax Week and indirectly involved Joe Gelders. Gelders happened to be in the neighborhood when he noticed officers beating Powers. who was handcuffed and confined to the back seat of a police vehicle. Unable to intervene in powers' behalf, Gelders began collecting the names and addresses of witnesses. North Carolina communist Junius Scales, a delegate who had accompanied Gelders to the party's conference on youth, recalls the incident vividly. Gelders, resembling a white-haired avenging angel, called to me, get witnesses, names, addresses, phone numbers. I stepped into the crowd and was mobbed by Negroes offering the desired information. When police reinforcements arrived, Gelders was whisked off to jail for failing to assist an officer, and Powers was arrested for assault and disturbing the peace. An LYS investigation later revealed that Powers, an epileptic, had had a seizure in a local movie theater, and a misguided manager called the police rather than an ambulance. Within two hours... Leaflets were distributed throughout the black community protesting Powers' beating and Gelders' arrest. Two weeks later, SNYC, the LYS, and the Communist Party formed the Jefferson County Committee Against Police Brutality. By the summer of 1941, the CP had made considerable progress toward reestablishing a radical movement in Birmingham. The youth-oriented organizations Communists Begat as well as those they influenced, built a movement that focused on civil rights, full citizenship for African Americans and poor whites, domestic and international peace, industrial unionism, and the preservation and improvement of American democracy as a whole. Furthermore, the people who made up this movement constructed a culture and a social world that tried to reproduce, in microcosm, the kind of interracial democracy they advocated in speeches and handbills. The situation in Birmingham was far from idyllic. Police repression and red-scare politics still dominated the local scene, but radicals were finally beginning to rebuild bridges that had been singed, not completely burned, during the Popular Front. News from across the Atlantic, however, Shattered the momentary peace and pushed Birmingham's radical collective into the rough waters of international politics once again. On the morning of June 22, 1941, communists learned that German troops had invaded the world's only socialist country. Once past the initial shock, party members across the globe dropped anti war slogans and joined the campaign to defend the Soviet Union. In Birmingham, SNYC, the LYS, the AFU, and local communists led the charge, insisting that all democracy-loving people support the People's War Against Hitlerism. Unlike the Nazi-Soviet Pact, which took quite a bit of explaining, intervention was far more consistent with the party's earlier anti-fascist politics and yet the turnabout caused even further divisions between communists and organized labor in Birmingham. When the Southern News Almanac published editorials by Sam Hall and AFU President Gerald Harris Sr. supporting the war effort, local CIO leaders attacked the newspaper for following the Communist Party line. The CIO's own state organ took the position that the Southern News Almanac Should receive no support whatever from any CIO member. SNYC and LYS activists threw themselves into the anti Hitler campaign with unrestrained enthusiasm. When Malcolm Dobbs left his post as LYS Executive Secretary for the Armed Services, Communist Sidney Rittenberg assumed the vacancy during the summer of 1941 and immediately organized a series of programs dedicated to stopping. The Brown Plague of Nazism, its newly created Youth V for Victory Committee, put on several Smash Hitler programs throughout Birmingham, and its Army Welfare Committees in the Mines and Mills worked hard to build support for the war effort. Likewise, SNYC sold Smash Hitler buttons, raised money for defense bonds, sponsored the Birmingham Citizens' Army Welfare Committee— SNYC Victory Mobilization Day, and a host of related organizations and programs devoted to mobilizing the black community behind the war. Yet world conflict neither overshadowed nor undermined local efforts to fight racism in Birmingham. On the contrary, the anti-Hitler campaign strengthened the resolve of local radicals, especially SNYC activists, to completely overhaul democracy in the South. Nazi Germany became the standard by which Southern society would be judged. In his Southern News Almanac column, Let Liberty Live, James E. Jackson published an exegesis aimed at both Germany and the South, entitled Don't Play Hitler's Game. Written in the form of a two-act play, the first scene opens with Adolf Hitler clapping his hands in glee as he examines photographs of black lynch victims in the South. In Act Two the war ends, Jim Crow has been abolished throughout the land, and KKK kliegels board trains under heavy guard on way to Leavenworth Prison to join the German agents. Jackson's column, along with SNYC's slogan, Freedom's Children to Arms, anticipated the Double V campaign National black leaders launched after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. Indeed, in September 1941, SNYC's National Council announced plans to rally the Negro youth of the South for the defeat of Hitler abroad and KKKism at home. Few progressive labor leaders, liberals, or African Americans in Alabama could argue with Jackson's logic especially after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December. The party and its allied organizations found themselves siding with old enemies on both domestic and international affairs. As individuals, Birmingham radicals finally had an opportunity to make friends in the local world of liberal politics, but to do so required a complete shedding, or rather a covering up, of their red attire. Because communism was still the dirty word in Alabama, the Birmingham CP had nowhere else to go but back into the shadows of SNYC, the CIO, the LYS, the SCHW, and even the NAACP. And yet, the Alabama Communist Party did not die in 1941. Instead, It quietly influenced liberal, labor, and civil rights organizations throughout the work of individual activists whose politics were largely independent of national CPUSA policy. Thus, in a twisted sort of way, the Birmingham CP had come full circle. It was an invisible army once again. Epilogue. Fade to Black. The Invisible Army in War, Revolution, and Beyond. I tried to get the Democratic Party to put in its platform a request to Congress to pass a law calling for the deportation of all communists, and if possible to fix it so the ship taking them to Russia would sink en route. Eugene Bull Connor, 1949. We had to beat it down so till we got Martin Luther King privileged to run the thing. That's why he could work much faster. Lemon Johnson, former SCU leader. Alabama's invisible army had come a long way since the days when members of neighborhood committees and unemployed councils read party newspapers, armed themselves with penny postcards and handbills, and occasionally cursed out a resident stool pigeon. Founded as a tightly disciplined underground movement composed of poor urban and rural blacks, and a handful of white folks too hungry or too idealistic to let race stand in the way of fighting the bosses, the Alabama CP had become, by the 1940s, a kind of loosely organized think tank whose individual members exercised considerable influence in local labor, liberal, and civil rights organizations. They were still invisible, but their invisibility had changed. Once able to hide behind innocent grains and starched overalls, in double-tenant shotgun houses and rural shacks, in the ore mines, steel mills, and quiet cotton fields, many communists now hid behind desks, podiums, in small offices and union halls among respectable people. They had become labor organizers, civic spokespersons, and race leaders who belonged to SNYC, the Alabama Committee for Human Welfare, the CIO, the AFU, and other related organizations. If there was anything dubious or dishonest about their intentions, it was that they sought to do what they believed communists should do, build a non-racist, democratic South, but understood the political limitations of identifying themselves as party members. Yet these women and men, veterans and neophytes alike, shared something in common with the old party. They responded to Central Committee and Comintern directives with blind faith, blissful ignorance, and bitter independence. And in the confusion of World War, Alabama communists frequently showed signs of all three. I believed it, sure, I believed it. I thought the bosses going to lay down with the workers, the wolves and the lambs going to lay together. I was teaching that. I was preaching that everywhere I went, in the Union and everywhere. These are Hosea Hudson's words. As a veteran who had once described the party as an army of the working class, Hudson's rosy picture of post-war America might seem rather strange. On the other hand, Hudson was expressing a sense of optimism that had gripped much of black America. Now that the U.S. was fighting a war against racism and injustice abroad, African Americans wondered how racism on home soil could be justified. But for communists in the Deep South, especially blacks, skepticism overruled faith and reinforced their independence. Hudson, Henry O. Mayfield, before joining the Army, and other black communists in the CIO knew the war was not a panacea. They continued to fight racism within their respective unions and spoke persistently on the need for rank-and-file control and internal democracy. Although Hudson was elected president of Local 2815, United Steelworkers of America, CIO, in 1942, radicals in the union were beginning to lose their influence. The rapid wartime increase in white union membership, the CIO's conservative turn in the face of Die's committee pressure, and workers' racist reaction to Roosevelt's Fair Employment Practices Committee eroded interracial unity within the CIO and further isolated union militants, especially in steel and coal. And the party's official opposition to the UMWA's 1943 strike certainly did not help matters. Nevertheless, communists were still influential in mine mill, especially Bessemer's District 5 and had begun to establish locals of the National Maritime Union in Mobile. Immediately following the infamous Mobile Race Riot of 1943, during which gangs of white dock workers, fearful of being replaced by black workers, assaulted blacks with crowbars and wrenches, the Maritime Union attracted hundreds of black longshoremen and dock workers who probably sought physical protection as well as union membership. By the time the Union was expelled from the CIO in 1949, its locals in Mobile counted over 2,500 members. While most black communists believed war would inevitably alter Jim Crow in the South, they also understood, better than National Party leadership, that change would not happen by itself. Black communists in SNYC promoted their own Double V program of action, despite the party's official opposition to the slogan. The Youth Congress fought racial discrimination in the armed forces, expanded its voter registration drive, continued to investigate police brutality cases and civil liberties violations, collected a mountain of data on discrimination for the FEPC, Fair Employment Practices Committee, hearings in 1943, and even waged a campaign in Birmingham to end segregation on buses. Throughout most of the war, SNYC was led by Esther Cooper, who had taken over as executive secretary after Ed Strong, James Jackson, and several other male leaders joined the armed forces, and Louis Burnham, SNYC's organizational secretary, who joined the Birmingham staff in 1942 with his wife and co-worker Dorothy Burnham. Louis, a 27-year-old communist with a degree in social science from City College of New York, and a year of law school behind him, was a thoughtful and articulate leader who viewed the war as an incubator for future civil rights struggles. Influenced as much by Gandhi, Du Bois, and anti-colonial resistance as by Marx and Lenin, Burnham suggested on numerous occasions that the European conflict marked a revolutionary moment for people of color throughout the world. He lectured on the Indian Communist Party and the anti-colonial movement, to local Birmingham activists, and in January 1944, proposed forming a black political party under the slogan Nonviolence and Non-Cooperation. Although the war remained a central component of SNYC's program until 1945, local and regional civil rights issues always took precedence. Under Burnham and Cooper's leadership, both of them were approaching 30 years of age, SNYC began to shed its youth-oriented image and emerged as a more seasoned black civil rights organization. Its closest local ally, the LYS, had folded around 1942 after most of its members either enlisted in the armed services, entered the labor movement, or accepted full-time positions in the SEHW. The Youth Congress, in turn, strengthened its ties with black social and fraternal clubs and mainstream black political organizations, particularly the NAACP. During the war, the NAACP proved a welcome ally to SNYC, the CIO, and the SCHW, as well as an increasingly vocal proponent of civil rights. Lewis Burnham's hope that SNYC would lead a militant southern civil rights movement seemed well on its way to becoming a reality by the time the 6th All-Southern Negro Youth Conference met in Atlanta in December 1944. The seven-year-old movement had attracted several prominent civil rights activists of the past and future, including Charles Gamaliel, F.D. Patterson, Percy Sutton, Martin Luther King Sr., Benjamin Mays, Ralph Abernathy, Majeska Simpkins, and Nanny Burroughs to name but a few. Other left-leaning mass organizations did not fare as well as SNYC during the war. The SCHW in Alabama temporarily folded around 1942, partly because its most active Birmingham leader, Joe Gelders, had joined the U.S. Army as an instructor, and the thorough character bashing it received from the Dyes Committee had already weakened the Southern Conference from top to bottom. When the NNC made a last-ditch effort to establish chapters in Alabama, it too failed. Between 1943 and 1944, veteran black communist Andy Brown, under the pseudonym Oscar Bryant, founded several small NNC chapters throughout the state that were called Work Together Clubs, largely for security reasons. In an effort to rebuild the party's rural links— Brown established the majority of work-together clubs in Camp Hill, Opelika, and Waverly, and in the black belt cities of Montgomery and Selma. With the exception of the Montgomery Club, which waged a lively voter registration campaign in 1944 under the leadership of William Anderson and Communist John Beans, the NNC accomplished very little in Alabama, and its locals eventually folded in 1945 a year before the national organization's demise. Brown did succeed, however, in reestablishing relations between the Birmingham CP and communists in Tallapoosa County, but he did so at a moment when the party had little, if any, public presence and practically no autonomous organizational identity. Late in 1943, Rob Hall, Lewis Burnham, Pauline Dobbs, and Hosea Hudson attempted to revive the party's educational function in Birmingham by forming the Alabama Organization for Political Action, later renamed the Good Neighbor Club. Although intended to improve race relations and provide forums to discuss the burning political issues of the day, the Good Neighbor Club attracted only communists and FBI agents. Hence the situation in May 1944 when Earl Browder decided to liquidate the CPUSA, form the Communist Political Association, and adopt what amounted to a pro-capitalist agenda. The Alabama CP, now led by Ordway Southard, followed Browder's lead and created the APEA in June 1944, although not without a fight. Several veterans opposed the idea from the start, including communists in Camp Hill and Dadeville, who simply bucked Browder's authority and refused to disband the party. The APEA in Birmingham opened its doors to everyone, including the president of Jackson Foundries, and its officers consisted of party and non-party people alike. Not only were its role and purpose unclear, but it became a hindrance to militants like Hudson, who was frequently asked by APEA members to tone down his criticism of CIO leaders for the sake of unity. Meanwhile, only weeks after the party's liquidation, Pauline Dobbs, Lewis Burnham, and 30 political and religious leaders reestablished an Alabama chapter of the SCHW. With Pauline Dobbs as secretary, the Alabama Committee for Human Welfare resumed where the LYS, and the NCPR had left off, concentrating primarily on civil liberties and voting rights. One of its first and perhaps most controversial cases involved Racy Taylor, a black woman who was kidnapped and raped by six white men in Abbeville, Alabama, none of whom were prosecuted. The Alabama Committee, SNYC, and the APEA formed the Committee for Equal Justice for Racy Taylor which provided legal counsel and secured representatives from the National Federation of Constitutional Liberties to investigate the case. By the war's end, Birmingham's communists, with the possible exception of CIO militants, looked to the future with glassy-eyed optimism. In 1945, the APEA successfully expanded its educational function by establishing a School for Democracy, in Birmingham, which in turn attracted a few more non-party people. Sam Hall, former editor of the Southern News Almanac and a communist, was elected chairman of the Alabama Committee for Human Welfare that same year. While not everyone in the SCHW was aware of Hall's political affiliations, his election was nevertheless interpreted by communists as proof that relations between radicals and liberals were improving. Furthermore, the party found an ally in Aubrey Williams, a former New Dealer and native son who returned to Alabama in 1945 to edit The Southern Farmer. Williams turned the former Coughlinite paper into a pro-civil rights, pro-labor, and anti-Cold War farmer's publication, which also served as the unofficial organ of the AFU. Although he distrusted the communists and remained, for the most part, a reluctant collaborator. He provided critical support for virtually every program the Alabama CP and its allied organizations proposed. But just as the Alabama cadre began to settle into their respective roles as non-racist liberals, race-conscious trade unionists, and class-conscious race leaders, national and international communist leadership made a sharp turn to the left. With a little help from French communist Jacques Duclos, whose 1945 article sharply criticized the disillusion of the CPUSA, Browder and his ideas were kicked out and William Z. Foster assumed leadership of a newly reconstituted party. The period following Foster's ascension to power and Browder's expulsion in February 1946 was marked by factional disputes, internal debates, name-calling, and a wave of expulsions prompted by charges of Trotskyism, Browderism, Negro nationalism, and a host of other left epithets. As the country moved right, the party under Foster moved farther left and further into isolation. Although Popular Front-style coalition politics lingered throughout the 1948 Progressive Party campaign, on the eve of the greatest Red Scare in American history, Foster marched his party directly into the eye of the storm. Alabama experienced some of the drama. During the Christmas holidays in 1945, Black Party leader Benjamin Davis Jr. traveled to Birmingham and officially reestablished the Communist Party. Rob Hall, who had just returned from the Army, and Ordway Southard were called up to New York to face charges of Browderism. Southard was removed from leadership in 1946, and Hall resumed party work in Washington, D.C., but neither was expelled. Indeed, there was no evidence that any Alabama communists were expelled during this period. The local cadre was just too small and friendships apparently too deep for national infighting to play itself out in Alabama. Besides, the Birmingham CP was experiencing its own post-war exodus. Ed and Augusta Strong had moved back to New York in 1945. Marge and Laurent, France, were now in Nashville. Joe Gelders would eventually settle in California. James Jackson and Esther Cooper left for New Orleans in 1946 as open, full-time communists. And a handful of rank-and-file recruits joined the nameless thousands who believed the urban North offered greater opportunities. Surprisingly, the Alabama leadership's wartime agenda escaped with minimal disruption. Aside from the obvious shift from pro-war to pro-peace and anti-nuclear politics, the party's 1946 goals for the South continued to focus on voting rights and civil liberties, but with an added emphasis on housing and full employment. Although the demand for self-determination in the Black Belt was resurrected under Foster, prompting a heated debate among self-styled theoreticians, most Alabama communists never gave the slogan a second thought. Rather, those who remained pursued the largely independent political course set in the early 1940s. Upon his discharge from the Army in 1946, Malcolm Dobbs took over his wife's position as secretary of the Alabama Committee for Human Welfare which allowed Pauline Dobbs to enter Democratic Party politics. She ran for state legislature that same year and polled nearly 7,000 votes, almost defeating her opponent in a runoff election. Meanwhile, Malcolm Dobbs directed most of the Alabama committee's resources to registering veterans to vote, fighting anti-labor legislation, lobbying against the Boswell Amendment, which would have allowed local registrars complete discretion in assessing voter qualification, and abolishing racially determined pay scales for Jefferson County teachers. He also supported Jim Folsom's bid for governor of Alabama in 1946, primarily because of his pro-labor stance, opposition to the Boswell Amendment, and mild support for voting rights legislation. Folsom's election was, in Malcolm Dobbs's words, a people's victory. In short, the Dobbses refused to heed Foster's call for a return to revolutionary practice, but were unwilling to break with the CP. The peace did not last very long, in part because national and regional party leaders were not content to let class war bypass the Alabama cadre. Nat Ross, who returned to the region in 1946 as Southern Director, Sought to restore the party and recruit militant trade unionists by assuming a more public presence. Sam Hall, who had spent most of 1946 as district organizer for the Carolinas, was sent back to Alabama in 1947 to promote the CP and its policies with greater openness. Hall publicly identified himself as Alabama's leading communist and ran a series of half- and full-page advertisements in Birmingham newspapers defending the party's right to exist. The policy proved fatal, essentially aggravating an already intolerable political atmosphere. In 1947, the Alabama state legislature passed a series of anti-communist bills requiring loyalty oaths from public school teachers and making party membership a misdemeanor. About the same time, HUAC identified the SCHW as one of many communist fronts, sparking a current of internal dissension and suspicion. The war on communism took a particularly nasty turn within the ranks of the Birmingham CIO. In November 1947, Hosea Hudson and three representatives from the United Office and Professional Workers Union, CIO, Malcolm Dobbs, Pauline Dobbs, and Florence Castile were expelled from the Birmingham Industrial Union Council for being communists. Neither Hudson, the Dobbses, nor Castile, also an SNYC activist, openly admitted CP membership, nor was there sufficient evidence to link them to the party. Nearly all black CIO members either voted against the action or walked out in disgust arguing that the expulsions were unconstitutional. Post-war red-baiting in the South was accompanied by the rise of pro-segregationist sentiment, stimulated by, among other things, wartime black militancy, interracial competition for jobs and housing, and the Truman administration's support for civil rights. Indeed, the Ku Klux Klan, the League to Maintain White Supremacy, and the Alabama American Legion deftly appropriated Cold War language to legitimize white supremacy before the rest of the world. The racist response to communism was not limited to white supremacist and conservative groups, however. After taking a strong stand against anti-communist legislation throughout most of 1947, Southern Labor Review editor A. H. Cather assailed efforts to integrate colleges as a part of communistic doctrine aimed at America with the intention of provoking revolution. To insist that Africans leave their own institutions and attend Aryans, Cather complained, would place this nation in the ridiculous position of fighting communism abroad and encouraging it at home. Thus was the political climate when SNYC decided to hold its 8th, All-Southern Negro Youth Congress in Birmingham, Alabama, in the spring of 1948. As soon as Public Safety Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor found out about the intended conference, he began harassing black ministers who had offered their churches as a meeting place. Consequently, all local black clergy withdrew, with the exception of 23-year-old Reverend C. Herbert Oliver, pastor of Alliance Gospel Tabernacle. Throughout the three-day conference, police surrounded the tiny Alliance Church and arrested several delegates, including Reverend Oliver, James Dombrowski, National Maritime Union organizer Edward Forey, and Idaho Senator Glenn Taylor. Bail drained a huge chunk of SNYC's already dwindling treasury, and to make matters worse, nearly every distinguished member of its advisory board subsequently withdrew, fearing association with a Communist Front. A year later, Lewis Burnham closed SNYC's Birmingham office and dissolved the organization. Birmingham's black middle class leaders looked on in silence as their wartime allies, black CIO organizers, the SCHW, and SNYC, were being crushed by racist, anti communist repression. After a remarkable period of growth and militancy during the war, NAACP leaders thought it best to dissolve all relations with alleged radicals and return to anti-communist choruses sung in the early 1930s. We don't believe it would be good political sense for Negroes, a racial minority, to identify themselves with any radical political departures, wrote NAACP officer and Birmingham World Editor Emory O. Jackson in 1948. Nevertheless, NAACP leaders were still red-baited for their stand on civil rights, despite their emphatic anti-communist rhetoric. The Alabama CP made one last effort during Henry Wallace's 1948 presidential campaign. With Lewis Burnham as Southern co-director, the Progressive Party attracted virtually every radical left in the state. But Gideon's Alabama army turned out to be a tiny lot consisting of communists, a few mine mill and AFU members, some remaining SNYC activists, a handful of Adamsville coal miners, and several interested independents. They met virulent opposition from most Alabamians, including the black middle class, which erupted in violence during Wallace's visit to Gadsden and Birmingham. Nevertheless, Wallace managed to get 1,522 votes more than any communist presidential candidate had ever tallied in Alabama. Once the elections were over, the Alabama CP entered its coldest winter yet. In 1949, the State Industrial Union Council gladly followed national CIO directives, expelling individuals suspected of party membership as well as entire unions most prominently the National Maritime Union and the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers. Mine Mill's expulsion revealed, once again, the racial dynamics of organized labor on Red Mountain. A secessionist movement led by whites within Mine Mill pitted black ore miners and white radicals against the predominantly white and largely racist Birmingham locals of the United Steelworkers of America. The steelworkers eventually won a federally-arbitrated consent election in 1949, but only after resorting to racist and anti-communist propaganda, KKK-style intimidation, and physical assault. Both the Birmingham police and the Ku Klux Klan declared full-scale war on suspected communists. In 1950, the city council passed an ordinance, authored by Eugene Bull Connor effectively outlawing the Communist Party in Birmingham. And a year later, the state enacted the Alabama Communist Control Law requiring all party members and communist front organizations to register with the Department of Public Safety or face fines of $10,000 and or two to ten years in prison. Known communists were arrested and harassed on a daily basis. Their homes became prime targets for cross-burnings. By 1951, the repression and isolation had become too much for the Alabama cadre to handle. The tiny band of fugitives opted to disband the CP, and many of them found it necessary to flee the state altogether. With the passage of the State Communist Control Law, the Alabama CP and practically all of its auxiliary organizations ceased to exist the advocacy of Southern Cold War ideology, anchored in racist reaction, xenophobia, and post-war competition for jobs and housing, and the unmitigated use of legal and extra-legal coercion, dealt the final blow. Yet, while the role of anti-communism cannot be overemphasized, it was not the sole reason for the party's demise having lost its mass base during the Popular Front, in part because district leadership dissolved the SCU, shifted from neighborhood-based organizing to coalition politics, and directed most of its energy and resources to building the CIO at the expense of the party, the CP was not in a position to stave off popular opposition. Although SNYC managed to sustain a large following during the war, It was especially vulnerable to red-baiting after 1947, since most of its supporters were anti-communist or indifferent. On the other hand, SNYC might have weathered the post-war storm if it had had a more open relationship with the CP, but it would have been considerably smaller and less influential. The collapse of an organization does not necessarily signify the destruction of a movement the eradication of traditions of radicalism. Indeed, American communism itself was born of several radical streams that can be traced to socialists, wobblies, and radical European immigrants, streams that were never fused consciously. Likewise, young white communists arrived in Birmingham seeking to extend this evolved form of American communism throughout the South but were overwhelmed by different streams of oppositional thought and practice rooted in Southern, especially African American, history and culture. Upon its Euro-American left-wing frame was placed, among other things, a heritage of agrarian radicalism, limited interracial labor militancy, evasive and cunning forms of resistance, prophetic Christian ideology, race consciousness, and intraracial class conflict. Because the party remained essentially invisible and its opponents made a concerted effort to erase or alter its history, the CP's legacy is not always easy to locate in Alabama. Nevertheless, on the eve of the so-called modern civil rights movement, a few surviving radicals quietly brought their experience, knowledge, and memories to the organizations of the day. The aging Montgomery Party leader John Beans joined the Montgomery Improvement Association during the bus boycott, and he was joined by several former SNYC activists, many of whom were called the Citizens Committee for Equal Accommodations on Common Carriers, founded by SNYC 13 years earlier. But becoming part of the new revolution was easier said than done. Civil rights leaders themselves fought nearly as hard as Bull Connor to extirpate suspected communists from the movement. During the early 1950s, for example, Bessemer's most prominent civil rights activist was mine mail organizer Asbury Howard, a progressive party organizer, CIO leader, and avid SNYC supporter who had been close to the CP since the war. As president of the Progressive Voters League and vice president of the Bessemer NAACP, Howard turned to the CP-led Civil Rights Congress for assistance on several occasions between 1951 and 1953, which did little to improve relations between national NAACP leadership and the Bessemer branch. In fact, Walter White was so fearful of Howard's activities in Mine Mill's supposed communist links that in 1953, he dispatched NAACP Labor Relations Assistant Herbert Hill to investigate the Bessemer Branch's role in the fight between the Steelworkers Union and Mine Mill. Hill censured Bessemer Branch leadership for having assisted communist-controlled unions in opposition to the CIO. Of course, any effort to uncover direct links between the CP and the modern civil rights movement would be futile and might reinforce stereotypes of communists as co-conspirators. But to deny any linkages whatsoever ignores a 20-year legacy of radicalism that had touched thousands of Alabamians. While it is ludicrous to imagine rank-and-file committees or party cells developing within the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, there have been moments when the old radical traditions invaded and influenced Alabama movement politics in the 1960s. One startling example comes from Lowndes County exactly 30 years after the bloody Cotton Pickers strike of 1935. In 1965, young Stokely Carmichael and a handful of SNCC, SNCC, organizers, Moved into this Black Belt County to launch a local voter registration drive and to form an independent political party. The tiny band of nonviolent student activists was somewhat startled when poor farmers of all ages, especially the older folk, came to meetings enthusiastic and fully armed. As one local sharecropper told Carmichael, you turn the other cheek and you'll get handed half of what you're sitting on. And yet, The same folks taught their young leaders how to don the mask of deference and humility. They evoked images of Lowndes County radicals of 30 years ago, namely CP and SCU leaders Ed Gracie, Jim Press Merriweather, Annie Mae Merriweather, Smith Watkins, Willie Witcher, and a host of others. Among the local leaders was an older fellow by the name of Charles Smith, a former member of the SCU and participant in the 1935 strike. Smith, who also devoted several years to CIO organizing on the docks of Mobile, was a movement veteran by the time Carmichael, Cortland Cox, Jonathan Daniels, and others turned his home into SNCC's living and working quarters. Smith provided more than sustenance. He offered leadership. In the face of violence and death threats, he was elected president of the Lowndes County Christian Movement and subsequently served four terms as county commissioner. How much these young activists knew about the SCU, the Communists, or the 1935 cotton picker strike in Lowndes before their arrival is difficult to determine. It is ironic, however, that Carmichael was very close to Gene Dennis Jr., son of the former National CPUSA General Secretary, and that he had had extended discussions with Benjamin Davis Jr., a black communist since the 30s who was quite familiar with the SCU's history. The fact is, the events of 1935 comprised part of the collective memory of Lowndes County blacks in 1965. The armed and poor sharecroppers who followed Carmichael's lead brought a lot from their past to the new movement including what the CP and the SCU had left behind. Some might have been young pioneers or YCL members in the early days. Others might have listened to elders tell tales of the Union's exploits. Most probably looked to SNCC like their foremothers and forefathers looked to the Communists. The Yankees were back again to give deliverance one more try. Even if the party's legacy indirectly contributed to the 1960s Revolution, it left a mark neither participants nor historians have recognized. Indeed, as civil rights and Black Power slogans began to fade from memory, the public silence surrounding Alabama's radical past gave way to nostalgia. In the 1970s, both Hosea Hudson and Ned Cobb a participant in the 1932 Real Town shootout, were the subjects of magnificent narratives, and Cobb's story was adapted to the stage in 1989 as a one-man show starring Cleavon Little. More surprisingly, in 1982, the Birmingham City Council awarded Hudson the key to the city for his role in founding the Right to Vote Club 44 years earlier. By recognizing Hudson's achievements... City officials wished to neither celebrate nor legitimize the movement to which he devoted 57 years of his life. On the contrary, their speeches and accolades merely eulogized an era too distant to haunt them. Birmingham's civic leaders, elected officials, business people, and law enforcement officers were confident that their city's radical past was safely buried in the memories of old folk But among those applauding Hudson's Award were members of the local Paul Robeson Club, activists in the Birmingham branch of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, a descendant of the IOD, the NCDPP, and the NCPR, and organizers from the Southern Organizing Committee for Economic and Social Justice, a direct descendant of the SCHW. Soldiers and architects of today's invisible army, these women and men continued to fight the Klan, investigate civil liberties violations, organize welfare recipients, register voters, fight for improved public education and health care, hold political discussion groups in modest shotgun houses in the black community, and dream of a world where such work would be unnecessary. Most young Alabama radicals who had the opportunity to shake Hudson's hand in 1982 probably knew close to nothing about the struggles of 50 and 60 years ago. Like Hudson's comrades in the 1930s, who knew just as little about the Union Leagues and black militias during Reconstruction, the Knights of Labor, the Populists, and the UMWA during the 1890s, the new radicals unwittingly constructed a movement rooted in the past and shaped by the present. When they finally met the old, brown-skinned ex-iron motor, they discovered a living example of a history lost. This concludes Hammer and Hoe" by Robin D. G. Kelly, narrated by David Satson, copyright 1990 by the University of North Carolina Press. This unabridged audiobook is published by arrangement with the University of North Carolina Press and was produced in the year 2020 by Tantor Media Incorporated, a division of Recorded Books, which holds the copyright thereto. Please visit Tantor.com for more information on our growing library of unabridged audiobooks.